The book of James, a very practical book, a book that is written by uh, James, who is the half-brother of Jesus. The half-brother of Jesus, same mother, different father. The half-brother of Jesus, also the brother of Jude. James writes here in chapter 1. Now, this is not the James, just to give you a little background. This is not the James of James and John, the sons of thunder, who were known because of their, their uh, uh, temper, who wanted their mother to go and talk to Jesus and say, Would you please put my sons on the right and left hand of Jesus when, you, when you're right and left hand side when you come into the kingdom? No, this is James, not one of the twelve. And first, he was... Uh, uh, he was skeptical of who Jesus was, and later on he came to know Jesus as Savior, became a prominent member of the Jerusalem church mentioned in the book of Acts. And so James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes here in this particular passage, and he begins by saying that he is a bondservant of God. James chapter 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flowers fall off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too, the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let's bow in prayer before we begin this morning. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would draw us into your presence as we come before your throne of grace. And may you open the eyes of our heart that we might see great and mighty things which we do not yet know. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Shared with you in the past couple of weeks a story about an event that happened six years ago in the news. It was about Ronnie Bowers. Ronnie Bowers was a missionary, missionary to South America. And she had always wanted to be a missionary since the age of 12, and she wanted to marry a missionary. And so she met her husband, Jim, and they got married, had a family, and went to be missionaries in South America. And as they had a family, they were flying back to the jungle where they ministered. And there they were flying back, and remember the story, the government mistook their plane 
mistook their plane as a possible drug plane, so they shot it down. And she was sitting there on the side, holding her daughter in her lap, and the bullet went through her and into her daughter and killed them both, stayed in her daughter. The pilot was hit, but he was able to land the plane, ended up on world news tonight, and Jim was able to share about what they were doing and about Christ in that event. During her funeral, I didn't share with you about what her husband said. And it's interesting, when such a thing happens like that, when your wife and daughter are killed with one bullet, when you are trying to do things for the Lord, and this is a mistake that happened, and it's interesting to hear his perspective on it all. As John Piper writes, quote, Jim Bowers stood in front of 1,200 people in Calvary Church of Fruitport, Michigan, and said, quote, Most of all, I want to thank my God. He's a sovereign God. I'm finding that out more now. Could this really be God's plan for Ronnie and Charity? Charity was his daughter. God's plan for Corey and me and our family? I'd like to tell you why I believe so and why I'm coming to believe so. And then he gives a number of events in and after that shooting that alludes to God's sovereignty and his sending of his son on the cross. He said, Ronnie and Charity were instantly killed by the same bullet. Would you say that's a stray bullet? And it didn't reach Kevin, the pilot, who was right in front of Charity. It stayed in charity that was a sovereign bullet unquote then he goes on to speak of forgiveness to those who shot at the plane quote how could I not he says when God has forgiven me so and then he adds those people who did that simply were used by God whether you believe it or not I believe it They were used by him, by God, to accomplish his purpose in this, maybe similar to the Roman soldiers whom God used to put Christ on the cross. Steve Saint was at that memorial service. Steve Saint is the son of Nate Saint. In 1956, he and Jim Elliott and three other men, all five of them, were speared to death by the Aka Indians, and many of you have seen the movie. Steve came to the microphone, and he looked down at little Corey, six years old. What do you say to a six-year-old boy in a funeral when he's just lost his mother, sister? He said this, he said, Corey, my name is Steve. You know what? A long time ago, when I was just about your size... I was in a meeting just like this. I was sitting down there and I really didn't know completely what was going on. But you know, now I understand it better. A lot of adults used a word then I didn't understand. They used a word called tragedy. But you know, now I'm kind of old guy kind of an old guy and now when people come to me and they say oh I remember when that tragedy happened so long ago I know Corey that they were wrong you see my dad who was a pilot like the man you probably call Uncle Kevin 
and four of his really good friends had just been buried out in the jungles. And my mom told me that my dad was never coming home again. My mom wasn't really sad, so I asked her, where did my dad go? And she said, he went to live with Jesus. And you know, that's where my mom and dad had told me that we all wanted to go and live. Well, I thought, isn't that great that daddy got to go sooner than the rest of us? And you know what? Now when people say, quote, that was a tragedy, I know they were wrong. Then Steve Saint looked up at the 1,200 people in that auditorium and he told them the difference between an unbelieving world and the followers of Jesus. And this is what he said. He said, for them, the pain is fundamental and the joy is superficial because it won't last. For us, the pain is superficial and the joy is fundamental. Did you catch that? For them, the pain is fundamental. The joy is superficial because it won't last. For Christians, though, the pain is superficial and the joy is fundamental. Because for those who don't know Christ, there is no hope, there's no purpose by which things happen, and there's no future as well. For the Christian, though, all things have purpose and it's not a tragedy. We know all things work together for good. And in the past two weeks, we've looked into the book of Job. We've seen a man who has faced a tragedy. We've seen how Job has responded to extreme difficulties far beyond anything that you and I will probably ever experience. The loss of all of his riches, the loss of all of his livestock, the loss of all of his servants with the exception of four, the loss of his health and his well-being. Sores breaking out all over his body, disfiguring his face, such that his friends, even when they saw him far off, could not even recognize who their friend was. Because there he was, sitting in an ash heap, where the leper sat outside of the city, scraping his sores with potsherds in order to perhaps get a little relief. Taking everything, having taken everything from Job, and what did he say? The Lord has what? Given and the Lord has taken away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Job displays that true faith doesn't deny God, doesn't turn tail, coat, and run. And so too, James in this book, in this particular chapter, does something similar in the entire book. James presents conduct here. As many of you have read James or gone through James, it's a very practical book. But he presents... Those things that are characteristic of a Christian. Where he later says, faith without works is dead. In other words, the genuineness of a Christian, of a person's faith, is shown by their actions or by their works. Works don't save a person, but works emanate from a changed nature. They're a result of a person who is bearing fruit as a true and genuine believer. Because anyone can say anything. And yet, their life tells the tale of what's in their heart, doesn't it? So in this first section of text, as we've read in James chapter 1, he outlines for us how we handle trials and difficulties in life. And here he gives six aspects, a half a dozen aspects related and instructive for us in the handling of problems and suffering and difficulties in life. 
The first that he says and makes for us is that attitude, the aspect of attitude, looking at trials with joy, looking at trials with joy. For in verse 2 he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. The first attitude of looking at trials and difficulties and problems in life is with joy. It's with joy. It may not be a happy circumstance. In fact, the people to whom James was writing this letter to, he writes it to people who were scattered, persecuted, dispersed abroad, it says in verse 1. Likely they had scattered because of the persecution under Herod Agrippa. Something perhaps after the stoning of Stephen, but more likely under Herod Agrippa who came to persecute them and they had to leave and they were being persecuted. And here he writes this letter. I mean, imagine to yourself that someday you had one day perhaps to pack everything that you owned in your car, pack your family in your car, leave your home, your job, everything you knew, all of your relationships and relatives here and run and go hide for your very life. And then you receive a letter that says, Consider it all joy when you encounter trials like this. Remember, for the Christian, there's, there's a difference between happiness and joy, right? Happiness comes from the word happenings. And people are happy when their circumstances are good, when life is going smoothly and well, and, and they pursue happiness. And that's what the world pursues. How can I make my circumstances so good that I'll be happy? And yet it's temporary, isn't it? Because circumstances will change, and sometimes they won't be happy. Or sometimes even when circumstances are good, they'll be unhappy. It comes because of circumstances, so they try to change their circumstances or have renewed circumstances over and over and over. New thrills, new vacations, new whatever it might be, so that I'll be happy. And they pursue the temporariness of happiness that the world gives. And yet, he tells us here, have joy. Have joy. Joy that is spirit-filled. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Joy is lasting. Irregardless of what the circumstances may bring, we can have joy. Joy that our relationship is right with God. That I have peace with God. Joy doesn't depend upon outward circumstances, but joy comes from the heart that a spirit produced when I know that God is with me through these circumstances and I can walk in peace in my heart. Just as Isaiah reminds us what? God gives him whom perfect peace, whose what eyes are stayed on thee. So we're to have joy. Joy that is spirit filled, produced. But how? Number two, through knowledge. Knowledge that trials test our faith. Trials test our faith. Knowing that the testing of your faith, it says, produces endurance. Faith is tested by the problems of life. And when our faith is stretched, we, because of difficulties, we remember that God is producing for us endurance. Those of you who have been a part of a sports team or in school or part of an athletic competition, no. I mean, when everybody comes to try out, generally most of, a, most of the people are, are out of shape. So they go do their lines, they go run around the track and they're huffing and puffing and whatever it might be. It's, it's always a trial at the beginning. But you have your vision on the fact that, you know what? When, this, when the competition comes, you want to be in shape. And you develop that endurance. Your body gets into shape. 
and your body gets more used to it. You put yourself through the pain of practice day in and day out, week in and week out, so that you can be ready for the day that the competition comes. And if you don't practice when the day of competition comes, you know what? You'll be left behind and you'll be struggling to run or you'll be struggling to, 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 to run with the rest of the guys or gals or whatever it might be. And the same is true with tests and problems and trials we have. I mean, small problems you develop a trust in God that, you know what, things will work out. Things will work out. Some of you, things will work out the first time you, you've learned to drive. Things will work out the first time you get this new job. Or the things will work out the first time you, 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 you get a home. Or whatever it might be, things will work out because God will help you through it. And you develop that trust in God. And your endurance grows. So we strive so that the next time around we won't wilt underneath the pressures of life. We know that endurance doesn't have, has a purpose. Just like an athlete trains for a purpose. And so it says here that we're perfected. Number three, endurance is what we're after. For testing produces endurance for perfection. For perfection. And it says here in verse 4, Let endurance have as its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And I've shared with you before the little word that says trials, or maybe your Bible says testings, has a word picture behind it. And that word picture is one of a, of a goldsmith or a precious metal person. When you get gold out of the mountain, it is full of impurities. And so they take that gold and they put it into the fire. They heat it up and they melt it. So that the impurities called the dross come up to the top. The goldsmith will take that gold out of the fire and he'll scrape the dross off. That's what testing is. So he'll scrape the dross off. And then he'll take that gold and he'll put it back into the fire again. So that the impurities and the dross will float to the top and he'll scrape that off. And he'll put it back into the fire again and he'll scrape that dross off when it heats up. And he'll put it back into the fire time and time and time again. And do you know when he stops? He stops when he can take that gold out. And he can look into that gold and see a reflection of himself. And that's what God does to us. He puts us into the fire so that our impurities can come out and our character can be shown. And he can mold us and shape us to be more like his son. Time and time again, we go through suffering and problems and trials so that we can be someday more and more pure. So that someday when God looks into our heart, he'll see a reflection of his son. If we don't take care of those character flaws, the Lord may put us into that fire again, time and time again. The refiner's fire so that we will be more like Jesus. When we don't know what to do in those situations of difficulties, the Lord invites us to ask for wisdom. That is the fourth thing. Wisdom. To ask the Lord for wisdom. But if any of you will ask wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously without reproach and it will be given to him. Now this particular passage relates to wisdom in trials. Wisdom in problems. God wants you to give wisdom in general, but he calls us to ask of him for wisdom when we're having difficulty. Wisdom is the practical application of knowledge. I mean, a person can be smart. They can have a high IQ, but they can really be lacking in common sense. Wisdom is how to take what I know and apply it at the right time. Not to 
fall prey to folly, foolishness. A lot of times, some who are very smart might just cast those aside because maybe their feelings take over and boom, they get themselves in some sort of mess. Wisdom is what God desires that we ask of Him. Often people don't think about what is wise. What is wise for me to do? What is the wisest choice? And teaching people to choose things that are wise is often the hardest thing to teach. Easy to teach information, easy to teach knowledge, but wisdom, wisdom. People make decisions often about their trials. What, what is the easiest? What is the quickest? What will make me feel the best? What will alleviate pain? I mean, if that were true, nobody would ever ask for forgiveness because it's hard to ask for forgiveness to say, oh, I've done wrong and will you forgive me? I mean, nobody would ask for that if when we're seeking what would make them happy or alleviate pain or escape discomfort. Rather than asking what decision most pleases God. What would be the wise thing to do that would please the Lord Jesus and would give Him glory? My actions might cause me more pain, but what would be the wise thing to do? When we ask wisdom, God says to us in this passage, don't ask with doubting. Don't doubt God. Don't forget what you've asked of God. I mean, how many times have we prayed for wisdom? What do we do in this situation and not acknowledge God on the other hand when He has answered? We're to ask for wisdom. Fifthly, we're to have humility. Have a humble perspective. Humility, a humble perspective. For it goes on. But the brother of a humble circumstance is the glory in his high position. And the rich man is the glory in his humiliation because like flower and grass he will pass away. He speaks of the rich and the poor. It's been amazing. You know, I've been blessed to have the opportunity to serve, uh, serve and to be among pastors in other countries who are very, very poor. They hardly have anything and they rely completely, including the food that they have on what they might receive from other poor peasants or whoever it might be. And these people don't have anything. It's fascinating how having wealth can easily change one's perspective and how it can can become a distraction, which are really idols. When one is poor, there is greater surrender because what you have, you simply don't have as much and it's so much easier to surrender everything to God. But trials and problems, you see, are indiscriminate. Trials and problems and suffering happens to anyone. God is not a respecter of persons. And so, suffering, what it does to us, it helps us to refocus. For the poor, they can glory that their riches are in heaven despite the suffering that they have here. That their true riches are in heaven. And you know what? They look forward to that because it is so much better than the suffering they go through here. And for the rich, they glory in their humility because you know what? Their focus too is turned towards eternity. And they realize and remember that you know what? The things of this earth are so, so transient And they are no better than the poor who may be suffering in the same situation. When both have their eyes turned towards eternity, both glorify God. God is no respect of persons. It happens to both good, good people that God may bless, have blessed. 
things common to our lives. Just like I read yesterday, Billy Graham was in the hospital for internal bleeding and he's been, of course, suffering from Parkinson's disease and, you know, age-related macular degeneration and health issues. And his wife just passed away a couple of months ago and she was 64 years old and she was suffering from degenerative osteoarthritis in her back and neck. Trials come to everyone. And if we come to God and we say, you know what, God, I, I, I want to come with a humble attitude. Humility keeps us from blaming God, from blaming others. Humility keeps us from being angry with God. Humility keeps us from thinking we deserve better. Humility keeps us from saying to ourselves, God owes me something. God owes me something. Rather than being grateful. We should be grateful that every breath we breathe, everything that we do, every day we can work is a blessing from God. That by God's grace I can do what I do. It is all a gift of God. Every day is a gift. And if you look at things in a humble way, then one will see, you know, I am so blessed. Those who endure the trials who are faithful to the Lord, there is reward. Verse 12. Reward, the approved will be rewarded. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to all those who love him. The one who submits to the trial and endures, there's a crown of life. That is the reward. And you remember the context here is James is talking about litmus tests to show the genuineness of our faith. That's what this book does. We learn about these things. He tells us to be a doer of the word. And he says, what? Faith without works is dead. Faith without works isn't works, isn't, isn't faith at all. And genuine faith won't, won't abandon God. It's not that, uh, oh, this gift of eternal life is given to those who will work through their problems, endure the trial. That's not how it is. What he is saying here is that that trial in those who endure exposes the genuineness of one's faith. It exposes the genuineness of one's faith. If one runs from God when the going gets tough, it shows what their true nature is like. And there is no reward because their faith wasn't true in the first place. They perhaps were merely professing believers. But that's what trial and suffering does for us. They enable us to see what is truly on the inside. Trials and suffering show us what is truly on the inside and whether or not we possess eternal life which will be rewarded to those who will endure. And that's why persecution in other countries is a purifying effect upon the church. When the government comes and they begin to persecute Christians and kill those who are believers, you find out who's really a Christian and who's not. And that's why it is so good for the church. Purifying effect. And that's just like the, the church that is mentioned in the book of Revelation chapter 2. If people were only there when the going is good, then you know, perhaps their faith not genuine. When the going gets tough, though, what shows on the inside is what's genuine. And so when we realize and we look at trials and problems that come in life, God calls us in this passage to look at it with joy. For we can't control our circumstances oftentimes, but we can control our attitude and our perspective. Knowing what? That it's a testing of our faith that develops endurance so that we can be more perfect like Christ. 
We are to ask God for wisdom and to come with humility. And that there will be a reward when the genuineness of our faith is shown. We can control our attitude and perspective. And I had the opportunity to visit Ron and Carol keenly. Ron, is a, he was a former attendee here and came here for a long time, was an encouragement to a number of you until they, he and his wife, Carol, moved out to Hansville across the, across the Sound. And he's had come down with cancer and he is, hasn't been removed and it's now in his lymph nodes and he's having a very difficult time. And I had a chance to spend some time with them last week, Wednesday. And he's 68 years old. They've tried their best to remove the cancer and now he has to go through chemotherapy and he has to go through radiation treatment and things with his health. You know, how is he doing? Some people have asked me, well, his health is not good. But I'll tell you, both of them have a godly perspective. A godly perspective. Perspective that I hope that someday if I were in the same situation, I could have as well. We prayed together and I asked Ron, how, how can I pray for you? And he said, you know, my pray, main prayer request is that I would truly be a testimony to all of those people who know that I'm sick. Because there are a lot of people watching. And he wanted to shine brightly for the Lord. And he also shared about what's truly on his heart. He shared and said, you know, how he really enjoyed, how he really enjoyed talking about certain things. He said, I, I don't really understand why people want to talk about all the things that this world are, you know, sports and entertainment and things like that that really don't matter in life. What he'd rather talk about is Jesus and what God is doing in his heart and life. What is God doing in your life? That's what he enjoyed talking about and what the Lord is doing. And Carol shared, she knows. Even this has a purpose. All things has a, have a purpose to them. Even Ron's illness. Sure, it makes them sad. But they have a godly perspective because when the night is dark, then the lights can shine all the brighter. Godly perspective, and I was so very encouraged. At the funeral of Ronnie Bowers, the missionary, who her and her daughter were killed, Elizabeth Elliot also spoke. Her husband was Jim Elliot. Many of you already know that he was killed in Ecuador along with the four others. She said to the family, You wonder what God is doing, and of course, we know that God never makes mistakes. He knows exactly what he is doing, and suffering is never for nothing. He has given to you, Jim, the cup of suffering, and you can share that with the Lord Jesus, who said, The cup the Father has given to me, I have received. And she ended with a poem by Martha Snell Nicholson. She says uh, there's a medicant in the poem, and a medicant is a beggar. And it reads like this. I stood a medicant of God before his royal throne and begged him for one priceless gift which I could call my own. I took the gift from out of his hand. But as I would depart, I cried, But Lord, this is a thorn and it has pierced my heart. This is a strange, a hurtful gift which thou hast given me. He said, My child... I give good gifts and gave my best to thee. 
I took it home, and though at first the cruel thorn hurt my sore, as long years passed, I learned at last to love it more and more. I learned he never gives a thorn without this added grace. He takes the thorn to pin aside the veil which hides his face. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, life is never a bed of roses, as we would say, nor is it smooth sailing. And for that we give you thanks, because, Father, you desire that through difficulties and suffering, that is when we see you. It is a thorn, Father that is used to pin aside the veil which hides your face. For often, Father, you desire that we look to you. But when things are going well, Lord, how we fail. So, Father, may we be faithful. May we see our trials and suffering as joy that your Spirit produces. May we ask for wisdom and may we humble ourselves accepting what you have given. For as Job has said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. But blessed be the name of the Lord. And he worshipped and did not sin. May we be father as Ron who said, I want to be a testimony to all who would see me. And so, as encouragement shines brightly, I pray, O God, that we might be strong in you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.